to the board game community show. I'm your host, Riley Stark. Join me as I get to know folks in this community. They could be designers or streamers, podcasters, YouTubers, publishers, whatever. Really anything with the nerd at the end of its title is welcome here on the board game community show. Show, show. Welcome back to the board game community show. Today I am joined by designer Andrew Styles. How you doing? I'm doing wonderful. How are you today? I am good. We were talking before we started, and then I was like, I always do this, and I want these to, stories to be in the podcast. So you were just about to tell me something, and I stopped you so rudely so that it could actually be recorded. So normally you always ask how you get into board games, right? And so for me, my dad was a huge board gamer a long time ago, like really early on. I was pretty much born into a board game family. Both my parents were teachers, and they believed that board games could teach you an infinite things about a lot of different things and give you a lot of skill sets. So we never had a shortage of board games in our house. I would say probably between 100 and 200 games for most of my life. Um, some of those went in and went out and whatever not, and a lot of them were more adult-oriented than I could handle, but they had plenty of kids' games too. But I was playing things that most people wouldn't be playing early on. A lot of Avalon Hill. um, you know, like a choir and playing uh, Naval War and stuff like that. So I was playing a lot of stuff. And in fact, we would go to cons and my dad is a huge puffing Billy tournament player, right? So he goes and just plays nothing but train games. But these guys play a broad spectrum of train games. So they're playing simple card games to 18xx and Ticket to Ride. And then whoever wins by the most in the most amount of games gets this championship trophy basically thing. And these players are very, very serious. They are very competitive and very like really into the weeds and stuff like that. And they tend not to leave the area because the more games you play, the more things you can qualify for wins. And it's just this really big thing. So he was that deep in the weeds early on in my life. And so I got to experience all of that stuff. And then on top of that, it would spread out in other things. So uh, I would say that I got into board games by going feet first the way you teach kids to swim you just toss them in and see what happens yeah that is incredible and to think you know like having 200 games now is still an impressive feat you know but right. there are a ton more games you know <laughs> like we have oh, yeah. like hundreds of games that come out a year back then i feel like was it were they like all quality games i, I just don't even know what like other back games then, existed back then. By today's standards, I wouldn't say they are, but back then it was all about kind of novelty and also um, all of them were like really cheap little chits and stuff like that. So, I mean, there were plenty of war games, but there was like outdoor survival games and there were space exploration games and then there were Dungeons and Dragons games. And like, I think it was more about having all these different stories to tell and all these different places you can go and places to explore rather than necessarily having the best game, right? Like, so they were all interesting and different because 
the depth and quality of play hadn't quite evolved yet. So it was more focused on what interesting themes can we put out there. And even if they play a little bit alike, it's still kind of cool. Yeah, that is, that makes sense. And those I'm sure are like the, were the building blocks to modern gaming, right? Like very much so we always stand on the, on the uh, shoulders of the giants that come before us. Right. So that's how that happens. Exactly. Yeah. So you've been you covered how you got into gaming, which uh, is awesome. Yeah. How um, how about game design? How did you? So get into that game happened design? relatively recently. I've always had you know things in the back of my head and things you play with. You got a notebook and you write some things down. Um, but I would say that like everybody else, COVID really hit me hard. It hit me very very hard. I was very lucky. I'm an essential worker. And so I stayed working the whole time, but I was very unhappy working in that environment. I didn't feel safe. I didn't feel um, protected. I felt very at risk on a daily basis all the time. And so I kind of escaped in my own brain, even at the job, starting to like do more of my own internal development in my brain, right? And once I started getting to a point where I'm like, this game is too far along for me not to make it, right? Like, I need to actually have the physical version of this game in the real life. And once I did that, the addiction hit. I think once I was able to physically make a prototype and actually play it, and I convinced a friend of mine to play it, I was like, oh, this game actually works, and it's kind of fun, and now i got to share it with others. And then so I started doing research on game design and started finding podcasts like the Board Game Design Lab, and then the rabbit hole opened up and swallowed me. So that's kind of how that worked. (laughs) That is awesome. Do... What was your first prototype like? Actually, so I'm a former sommelier. I'm a wine geek. Um, and so my first game was about wine. Of course, you know, you always design what you know first, right? Uh-huh. And as much as I love viticulture and I love vinos and stuff like that, those are very heavy games. I can't share those with my friends. and fa- Well, my family, yes, but my friends, not so much. Um, so what I set out to do is create a wine game that's just a card game, something you can take and travel along with you, whatever not. But I wanted to showcase how wines age because it's it's totally a mystery to a lot of people. Even fairly decently knowledgeable wine people don't necessarily know how certain wines age, right? Like I think if you know wines a little bit, you know that cabs, petite syrahs, Zinfandels, those tend to age pretty well. They're heavier reds or, you know, the heavier whites like Chardonnays. We all know that there are vintages on bottles of champagne and stuff like that. So we know that those can age. Um, But how long can you age a uh, Merlot Rosé? How long can you age a Gewürztraminer? Like how long can you age some of those things that you're not really sure of? So this idea came to me is how could I kind of express that in a way that was interesting and gamify it? So what I came up with is that each card is actually a bottle of wine, and then each card itself also has a scoring track based on how it ages. So like if it's a cab, and let's just say it's a Napa cab, so then you get one point if you drink it quickly, you get two points if you drink it a little slower, three points a little slower, and it kind of like adds and progresses to you. At the end, if you hold it as long as you possibly can, you get eight points for that, okay? Okay. Then I had a like the second card, maybe a Zinfandel, and you can drink it, and it gives you two points right away, and then maybe four points, and then maybe six points, and then eight points, but then after that, it's going to drop off. It's going to give you like five points, and then three points, and then one point. Like So you get you know, like this flow, and you can kind of see this like bell curve a little bit of how they do that. 
And then once I did that, it kind of just kept going from there. Like, well, okay, now I've got this cool thing where all the bottles age differently and you're going to try to find a way to put them in your cellar at the right time so that when you drink them, you get the maximum quality of the wine that you're drinking. And that's the game. That is awesome. That, yeah. that sounds great. I mean, I didn't know. I mean, I kind of figured, you know, there's like peak times. I'm not a right. drinker at all, so um, I'm not too familiar with wines. But even this, like, I would still totally get into that kind of thing. Because it's yeah, just like well, timing and organizing yourself. Also, the, the hope for me, too, as a person is just because I want to share my love of wine. Wine is a flavor, right? Like, it's not necessarily yeah. about the alcohol. It's I don't drink right. wine to get drunk. I drink wine because it pairs well with food. I drink wine because it's an interesting and complex flavor profile that you can't find in real life in other places. When I taste a really old Pinot Noir and it's like, ooh, I get this note and that note. And then I keep going. I get four, five, six, seven, eight different flavor profiles in that one glass. That's the joy that I find in wine. And then the the way that it changes and evolves, it's, it's like a living, breathing thing, right? It has good days and bad days, too. People don't know this about wine, but um, it ebbs and flows inside the bottle. So like you can drink – if you had the two bottles side by side, if you drank one on Monday, it would taste different on Thursday when you open that second bottle. A little bit. Not a ton. But it, ta- it tra- tastes dramatically different from year to year and even yeah. more dramatically from year to five years. So you know, people who work in the wine industry can see those differences and see how things evolve. But if you get one bottle of wine from your local wine shop and you stick it in your fridge and you open it up a year later, it'll be better most likely, but you don't know how much better, or maybe it'll turn because it's bad if it has light and vibration. So if if you're, if you're constantly opening your fridge and lights hitting that bottle and the, and the vibrating of the, of the motor is making it buzz a little bit, see, these are all things that affect this. And so I'm getting too deep in the weeds with the wine, but um, no, this is really fascinating for me, not knowing anything about it, really. <laughs> so this game for me was about a way to teach one element, but also to have the kind of game that I can play with anybody in the world. Like I can play this with someone's grandmother who just likes trick taking games and wants to play spades, right? So like this game is just a way for you to say collect these bottles of wine and try to keep them in order as best you can, and then you win if you have the most points. So it's not deep and complex. And my hope also is that this is the kind of game you can give to your wine friends and they'll actually play it. Oh, like yeah. We all have those – we have those gifts that you give to people because the theme is interesting and you know they're into it and they get it from you and they go, oh, thank you. That's so sweet. This is going to Goodwill in a week and a half. <laughs> <laughs> You've never seen that at their house after that. No, I don't want that to be that way. But I do want it to be the kind of thing that brings people who are gamers and people who are non-gamers together in a way. And that's kind of where my design philosophy goes. So in the super duper deluxe version, there is yeah. a – bottle of each type of wine aged to each year so that when you finish it you have to like you know it's like oh here's your here's your one year or here's your you know 1990 and here's your 1980 wine you know like here drink that just for a mere three thousand dollars you can get the super (laughs) deluxe edition (laughs) yes very much so i'm totally more with selling that that's fine we can we can we can source that out from all over the world and they can get little (laughs) tiny bottles like airline bottle size oh there we go (laughs) that right um but also what i hope this does and maybe this is just me being grandiose plans but 
I hope this also can be a format that maybe makes it on the way to all the bottles in the world's wine labels, where like it tells you how long it can age. It gives you a format for oh. how you can, you know, like how long this bottle can sit in your cellar and still be optimal. Maybe it, it creates a, a format for a timeline that can go on each bottle and kind of teach people that way. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but it would be awesome if it did. That would be really cool. You could even, I mean, could you do like a sticker that has that timeline that people could just like buy? Yes. Sell this separate. And then like, yeah, tape it there. And then you write the year that, or it it has the year on it, right? Like that it was bottled. Uh, Most bottles have that year on there. Yeah. Unless it says NV, which means non-vintage. And what usually that means is they're blending uh, juice from the previous year into this year or previous oh. years because some of them can add more depth and complexity by letting it ferment outside of the bottle and then adding it to a newer batch and then you blend the two together. So interesting. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. So you co- totally could have like one of those just trackers that's like, all right, you've got, you know, eight years and then after that it's going bad. I don't, obviously I don't know anything about timelines, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But I mean, if you're drinking an Albarino, it's probably not even going to last a year. It might last two. I'm not sure. But like yeah. one of those things where like different wines have different age periods. And although you can find those if you hunt them out, most people don't try to. Or I mean, if you talk to the winemaker, they'll tell you as well. But that's not public information for a lot of things. So here's me shining a little light on this little thing that people don't know about. But if they did and they had the means to to stash, they can end up having some ridiculous bottles of wine. When you go to like auction house websites for wine, they're usually selling things that they've been aging or people who are selling them now have been aging them so they can make a profit because they're infinitely more valuable once they've hit the aging process. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's a collector, right? Like Mm -hmm. you have people do that with board games too, you know, They'll buy their Kickstarters and then they'll wait a year or two after it's gone out. And if it does well, they can resell it because it's, it's, it was a Kickstarter exclusive. Very much the supply and demand. Now, obviously, we hope that those great games get reprinted by somebody. Yeah. But yeah, there are ones out there like Glory to Rome that you can't get unless you want to buy some aftermarket. Or some people retheme and make their own personal copies, which I'm a huge fan of, by the way. But I also understand that that doesn't help the publisher. But if you can't get the game, I'm fully on board with making your own pirate copy. Totally. Okay. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I I can see that definitely. And there's when I was starting with design, I was so surprised to learn that you can't copyright mechanics. Right. But it makes right. sense. Yep. Uh, and that helps to spur growth and whatnot. And you look at any of you know these games behind me, and you can be like, "Well, that obviously stemmed from this. Mm-hmm. This has almost this is almost the same type of game, but they add this or they changed mm-hmm. it so that this works that way." So yep. I say, as as long as you put a little flourish on it that makes it your own, I'm yep. totally cool with like you know retheming a game and and adding something to it very so, much so yeah. yeah i mean that's kind of what game design is it's us yeah. learning from each other and then tweaking and putting a new spin on it and then hopefully during that process and this usually happens during play testing by the way you find out something that doesn't work exactly right and you tweak that and then that tweaks something else and then all of a sudden you've evolved into something new and that's the best part yeah it's such a fun exploration to find those things that don't work yeah it's also very ego crushing sometimes when you feel like, 
I've got this great idea. And then as soon as you play test it, you're like, half of that does not work. <laughs> I have two favorite moments in game design is one, when I wake up in the middle of the night with a new idea and I write it down. That's my favorite time, even though I really would rather be sleeping. <laughs> and then the other time is once I've finished making a physical prototype and it's there in front of me, and it hasn't been broken yet. Ooh. I'm like, oh, the possibilities. Look how beautiful. I have my little cards. Everything's all lined up. Everything looks all nice. Yeah. And I know that in a week and a half, that's going to go in the recycling bin because <laughs> I found out all the things I did wrong. But for right now, I'm going to just soak this up and enjoy it. Yeah, that is really exciting. I love that. So Wine Cellared is yep. is signed. Yep, right? it's signed. Can mm-hmm. you say with who or anything? Any with 25th century games. So I'm very, very pleased. Um, Chad is not only a spectacular human being, but also he has a real flair and a panache for finding the right theme and art to go along with it. If, if anybody hasn't seen it, uh, his reissuing of Raw with Ian O'Toole as the artist is gorgeous. I mean, it's just so beautiful. And Raw is a great game. So I love that it was out of print and he's bringing it back and he brings one of my favorite board game artists into the mix and it's just gorgeous. So I was more than happy to hear that he had interest in my game and I have no doubts he's going to do it justice and make it beautiful. Yeah, it yeah, that does look pretty on game found like the recent campaign, right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, that is gorgeous. I was tempted by that. (laughs) So um, do you have like a release window, I guess? You know, these things take time, and I know it's going to take time. We are hoping, and uh, let's just cross our fingers and see what happens. Maybe next year is what we're hoping. Nice. What? Where are you at? What state? I'm in Chicago. Chicago. Okay, perfect. Do Is there a pretty good like design community there? Um, there used to be prior to COVID, and it seems like we've all kind of gone into our holes and everything seems to be online now, which is fine. I'm okay with that. Uh, I'm looking forward to when we finally get out of this pandemic. And, you know, I I don't mean just the tail end. I mean, like, get out of it completely. Um, We can rebuild that back up again. But uh, I know there are amazing communities all over the world, and Chicago seems to be splintered at the moment, but I think we'll be all right. Well, if it makes you feel any better, you know, we've got a great community here in Utah, but Mm -hmm. the pandemic definitely like ever since the pandemic uh, and we've started doing our meetings again, we get just like a handful of people that come nothing like before the, before everything happened. So, you know, it'll, it'll grow back. I'm sure. That said, it does give me an excuse to travel for the local protospiels. Like I went to, uh, Protospiel Indie, that was great, and I've got uh, I went to the Unpub Room at Origins this year a couple times, and I'm planning on going to Protospiel Michigan, so that's cool. Anything I can drive to, it's a Protospiel. Count me in. That is so cool. Yeah. While we're talking about, you know, you brought up Origins. You just got back mm-hmm. from Origins. I did, and it was it was a whirlwind experience and some really cool things and. Uh, yeah, I worked for 25th Century while I was there. I have to say that because, you know, if he's going to support me, I'm going to support him. That's kind of how yeah. it works for me, right? So even though my game isn't on his table yet, I was more than happy to say, hey, listen, if you need somebody to help you out at the booth, I'm happy to help out. Very cool. How was it? Like uh, It was great. Yeah. 
It was great. We, we had a really good location. Um, what I liked about our location the best is that we actually had fairly open views to the floor because the surrounding areas around us didn't have the really huge um, displays and big things. like. So I actually got to people watch a little more than I normally get to at a booth because normally you have these huge displays that are kind of crowding the space around. You could, I could see more outward and down the line and everything like that. And it was really good to see a lot of people that I, I knew – but as a person who's relatively new to board game design, I'm still networking as hard as I possibly can and meet as many people as I possibly can. And masks make that almost impossible. But uh, I did get to see some people who I knew, which was great. And then also people I knew from talking on Discord and talking in chat rooms. I actually get to shake their hands and give a little handshake and then sanitize directly afterwards. But uh, <laughs> it was really good to, to actually meet some people in real life I hadn't got a chance to yet. So that was awesome. That is so cool. Yeah, I look forward to the day I get to do that. What Was there like a highlight uh, moment or a couple of highlight moments of it? Uh, there were several. Um, I, I will say this. I got to see behind the scenes at a couple different things, which was kind of cool. And one of them was a game that's going to be coming out very shortly. Um, I don't know exactly when, but... It's going to be published by Smirk and Dagger, and it's called Boop. Have you heard about this one yet? No, I haven't. Okay, so it's by Scott Brady, and uh, the guy who did Hughes and Clues and something like that, and he's a really great designer. Uh, but essentially what it is is it is a abstract cat pouncing on a bed game. It's a two-player head-to-head strategy game where – you place your, your cats, you have them pounce onto a little quilted mattress. And then where they land, they kind of put a shock wave and bump the other pieces away from them. And you're trying to do this interesting, like lay three in a row at the same spot, but you can't put them next to each other because then it causes the other ones to boop away. So you have to kind of like boop them into a pattern by doing these landings. Huh. And, it, and then if you do that, you can upgrade to a full-size cat from a kitten. And then the full-size cats don't get booped by the kittens, but they get booped by other full-size cats. So then it's like an upgrade engine-building aspect of, uh, like, connect three in a row. So you win the game by just having three full-size cats in a row. But it's so not easy, and it's so much deeper than you expect it to go. And as you're playing it, you're like... It's like an onion. You start sealing the layers of, th- of strategy going on. This is going to be the kind of thing I'm going to see people playing in tournaments next year. I totally feel like this is the kind of game that has so much more depth than it looks like, and it's gorgeous. The little quilted fabric, the little uh, meeples are thick and meaty and, and just so cute, and it's such a simple game. That's had, it, it's the one that has stretch, that it has strategy and depth that you don't expect, and I love that. that yeah, that sounds kind of it sounds cute. It sounds like the game type of game I might be able to get my wife to play without oh, too much resistance. <laughs> it's the game that all of us are going to give our wife to play. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I'm also very jealous I didn't come up with anything close to it myself. So that was pretty cool. But that was that was probably the highlight for me of the games that I played. I played a lot of other stuff. Um, but that one, I cannot wait to get my hands on when it's available. I know it's going to be a little while, but I have to be patient. Um, but that said, I had lots of great experiences, uh, you know, playtesting in... Uh, the unpub room is just, it's just so much fun. You've got 12 tables of games going 
and the feedback is spectacular and the networking is great and just the people are so warm and, and friendly and kind and I love that stuff. So that was definitely a highlight. And then, you know, being in the booth and 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 just talking to people about games, that's just a lot of fun and it's just great. I just I feel like I'm just being ambivalent with the, the generalities here, but just being in the presence of people who love games is also a very cool thing in and of itself. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That comes across. I think, I think it would be a cool thing to be able to go to like an established company's booth and, and work it for a little while and just get to interact with people who are like, Oh, what have you got coming out? What, what's going on? What, you know, what's new? What, you know, what's old, what haven't I done? And I think that would just be such a fun, you know, total strangers coming up and just have the same exact passion as you. Yeah. Plus it helps when the games are pretty awesome. You know, like yes. you get to passionately <laughs> sell awesome games to people who didn't even know they existed, which is awesome fun. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And it doesn't seem like it would be too hard, right? Like, well, you know, you got to get support from the, from the publisher themselves and you got to have a contact with them and so like that. But also I think it helps if you care, like, yeah, if you really want to do it, then go ahead and do it. And somebody somewhere will say, yeah, I'll take a chance. You got a chance. And then once you prove yourself, it's easier to say to the next guy, you know, I, I did this for them. Can I do it for you? And they're like, yeah, if you did it for them, I'm going to let you do it for me. So yeah, that's cool. <laughs> nice. My goal is eventually to get to all the publishers who sign my games and I'll work at all their booths. That's what I'm hoping for. That would be great. Yeah. Well, I think that's such a cool attitude to have of, you know, like you're helping me out. I'm helping you out. Like, Oh, it's, it's a community. That's how you build yeah. community anyway. Right. So that's what I'm here for. Yeah, exactly. Well, we, I, uh, I was going to talk more about your other designs you have that aren't signed. So let's jump back to that. What other games sure. have you got so, in the works? This is the one I was spent all week uh, pitching to while I was at Origins. And I was able to meet with a bunch of publishers. And uh, some have shown some interest. So I'm, I'm crossing my fingers and we'll see where that goes. But uh, this one is in the middle of being renamed because I found out that everybody hates the name. So this uh -oh. one is currently called Cats and Mouse Laws. It's a uh, two-player or four-player head-to-head heist game set in the Wild West. And uh, based on the feedback of hating the name, I'm going to change it to the Cheddar City Shootout. What do you think? Is that a better name? Oh, that's a pretty good name. Yeah, that's that's got a very fun flow to it. All right, so I'm, I'm definitely making the right cho choice. All right, cool. So basically what you are is you're either the cats or you're the mice, and you're fighting over safes filled with cheese in the Wild West. What you do is you draw three cards, which are location cards. You play two of them to a location or multiple locations, and you're trying to set up blackjacks at each location. You're trying to get sets of 21, right? So if I get a two, a three, and a four, maybe I put the two at the first location and a four at the second location, I discard the three, and then I look at my hand of my cats or my mice, and those have numbers as well, and I'm going to put maybe the seven down by the four. So now I've got 11 toward the 21, and maybe I need to find a big card after that. Um, but the cool thing about this one is that each of the location cards also has a symbol with it. And if you manage to get two of the same symbol at the same location, it triggers a special effect and the oh. special effect messes with your board or your opponent's side. So if you get, um, the vulture, you can pull a card off the discard pile and swap it with any of the cards on the board that are face up. So I can take your eight and turn it into a two, or I can turn my three and turn it into a seven 
or whatever. So you can kind of affect the board. There's also a rifle. And if you get the rifle, you can shoot the other player's character across the board before the, the round ends. And in this game, if your character is injured, their value goes up. So you get stronger because you're mad, but you also might bust on the 21 if you have too much. Um, but there's also things like a lantern where I can reveal one of the cards on the other side and I can see what's going on over there. I can know what your number is and then I can kind of plan accordingly. Or um, there's a boot that allows me to move one of my face down characters to a new location or yours. So if I know you've got what you need to make a 21 over here, I'm going to go ahead and move that character to another location and then make you backfill and figure that out as well. So it's this kind of really interesting back and forth. And then one of those things where like the game was designed as a two-player game, but this game also actually shines with four because you're not allowed to talk to your partner. Oh, yeah. So you're sending out your guys and claiming spots to figure out the house, but you're trying to figure out what they're doing as well because you can only look at your the cards you deploy. So based on that, you also have to win enough cheese as a group to win the game, but then you have to win enough cheese between the two of you to beat your partner. So it's competitive co-op on each side, which I think is the most fun co-op space. That sounds really cool. I like that. I love, love that you took 21 and made something really like interesting with it. Well, it started as poker and that was just so much harder. So oh, <laughs> we distilled it down to blackjack is it's kind of feels like it's still wild west, right? Like, so that's yeah. what and definitely a lot more simple to understand and, and get a, a good flow. You know, you're not yeah. overcomplicating it. Yeah. That's the next game, right? That's the sequel will be poker or an expansion. <laughs> well, yeah. Maybe maybe we maybe we could make it bigger. We'll see. But yeah, for right now, that's the one I'm currently pitching, and uh, I've got a couple other ones down the pipeline that I'm really excited about as well. I'm also starting to branch out and do more co-designs, which I'm very excited about doing. Just meeting other designers, picking their brains, and it really amazes me how, as designers, we think differently. And I don't mean think differently from the regular population. I mean how each designer thinks differently. And how they approach the design process differently. It's so interesting. Yeah, it really is. Are there any of those that you can or want to talk about? I don't, you know. With sure, yeah. Uh, a friend of mine, Jason Harris, who I literally just met through all these board game communities, he's an amazing designer who is still yet to be unearthed or found or however you want to put it that way. Um, but he's got a number of really smart designs and it's only a matter of time. His stuff is too good not to be picked up. Um, but we started this back and forth conversation and I was like, Hey, I love your stuff. I think you do a great job. Let's talk about what we could do. And we just started brainstorming one day. And I think within an hour we had almost a fully flushed game designed. Um, and so we're putting together this one right now is a castle building and siege engine game where it's trick taking, but when you take the trick, it's trick drafting, I should, what I should say. It's one of the formats I have for Wine Cellar that I really, really love, and so we're playing it here. But what you do is you play a card to the trick the way you would normally do. You follow suit and stuff like that. But then whoever wins the trick takes cards from the prize pool that's there in drafting format. So the winner takes first, the second highest takes second, the third highest takes third, and the fourth highest get, gets whatever's left, right? Um, but then each of those cards has two resources on it, either a polyomino that you can use to build your castle on a grid 
or the resources to build the siege engine that would then be used to attack the castles at the end of the round. So you're trying to build your own defense, and then you're also trying to build an offense to take out everybody else's defense. And uh, that one I'm super excited about. It's moving very quickly. Um, we have some polishing to do, and and by the time you listen to this, it may be completely different. Um, <laughs> that one, everybody seems to love enough the core value system and the core process. It's just a matter of finding the, the tunes of the, the math, right? Like you got to make the balance work, but yet also make it fun and exciting. And I think that's the hardest part of game design. It's not the balance because it's very easy to balance everything perfectly. It's the balance with the fun. You yeah. got to have parts of it that can explode or do some cool combo things and yet not make it so powerful that it wrecks the game in the first round, right? So you got to find the balance genre. I wouldn't say it's balance. You got to find the it's like it's like finding a hand grenade radius, right? Like you got to you got to get close, but it doesn't need to be a sniper shot. You just got to get close, right? So that's what it is. <laughs> well, with that, you know, you talked about wines earlier, right? Where it, mm-hmm. like there's kind of ebbs and flows. I think that should be how games are as well with ebbs and flows yeah. of like you need those kind of like more chill moments or like less tense moments so that the tense moments feel more tense and finding that like being able to create that, like those ups and downs so that the game isn't always at a 10, right? Like right. Or always at a two and you're just like, okay, yeah. Like, yeah. I you want the tension to build, not constant because otherwise it's just stress. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that's exactly, it's almost like you need it to, ebb and flow while going up so it's like you need Mm -hmm. to start at a one and then go to a three and then a two and then a five and then a four you know like yeah ideally that would be the way to do it yeah yeah in a in a perfect world but you don't have to do that obviously there's plenty of games that you know like peak out somewhere and you're just going but and they always say you know leave them wanting more right like you got to end the game before there's always that like, Oh, if I had one more turn, I would have done this and it would have scored me so many points, but like it stops you just shy. And I think that's where the best games do it is that it makes you want to play a second time immediately. And that's generally how I judge good game design versus bad. If it's like I played through it, it took me two hours, but you know what? Okay. That was fun. I don't need to play again. That's That's terrible. That's poor. I mean like that, but that said, I'm not trying to trash other people's designs, but for me, that means you missed an opportunity to to tweak something a little further and get to the point where I want to play it again. Yeah, exactly. I mean, just you know, looking at Wine Cellar and thinking about that, that seems right. like the type of game where you can easily have that like, ooh, if I had done this type of thing, it could have worked out better. You know, like, and it does seem like it has a natural progression of like building intensity or like making difficult choices of like, do I want to do it this way or this way? Mm -hmm. Do I want to pull out early or, you know, risk it. So. But it's also the kind of game that you can play in 15 minutes, like a single hand is 15 minutes. So if you play it poorly and it goes badly, just wait for the next round. Like you just play the next one. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Is it meant to be played in just one hand or do you have like a scoring system for playing multiple like if you wanted to play for two hours i mean you absolutely could play for two hours and in fact what i hope this turns into is the kind of more of a tournament style kind of thing where people play three or four hands and then the total score of the four hands 
is kind of how the game goes. So I would say you want to play a round for each player that's playing. In a three-player game, you want to play like three rounds or something like that. But it plays up to six. So you could play six players and play six rounds for a long time or however you want to do it. But I feel like that's more up to the players and how they want to play the game. But it's definitely there in case you want to do it that way. I really like that. I like that kind of option of like, because sometimes it's like you just have a bad hand or, or, you know, you're, you're still trying to figure things out. But I mean, ideally you'll have played it a couple times. One of my design philosophies with card games though, is I never want there to be bad cards. Oh, okay. I want cards to always have value in certain circumstances or other circumstances less so, but actually I find it more interesting where a good card at the beginning is a bad card late. Or oh, a bad card go. early is a good card late, right? That's more interesting to me that when I look at my hand, it's not like when spades, I pull up a bad hand, I'm like, this is a bad hand. Okay, for the next four minutes, this is going to suck because I'm just going to follow, follow, follow and not win anything or whatever. That's not fun. Instead, what I'd rather have is, okay, if I can hold off a little longer, I'll, I'll get rid of some of these middle cards. But then these other cards at the end will kick butt. Like I'll be able to tear it up at the end there if I just want to be patient with it. Or do I throw this card out early and get, you know, get the ball rolling and then I'm going to suck a little bit at the end. You know, that's more interesting to me in making decisions on how you play card games. So I, yeah. I tend to lead toward that thought process in my designs. That does, that makes a lot of sense to me. That's very well put. Um, we, we have been, I uh, all like kind of focused more so than a normal episode. I feel like <laughs> well, I see that you have a wedding ring. Yes. So married, right? Yes. Very do, much so. And very happily married. Yes. Good. Great. Do you have, do you play, uh, I guess, do you have kids? I do not have children. We have two 18 year old cats, which are essentially oh, children yes. for us. Yeah. That, I mean, we have multiple cat. We have no kids and, multiple cats and a bat bunny and a guinea pig yeah we're totally for parents i get it um but, but i also you... have i also have a lot of nephews and nieces that i can borrow and give back which i like doing too. <laughs> that's way more fun because then you can just spoil them and you're the cool uncle and you don't have to like you know beyond 24 7 uh, I, I agree and i actually hope that soon enough those kids will start to appreciate the board games more than they currently do and i'll be even cooler because i have the awesome collection they can come visit and play yeah that's me i'm the cool uncle we just had a little vacation and my nephew brought like we gave him a full painted set of marvel united that me and my brother painted Ooh. for him and so he brought that and was so excited to play it. And I, I had some other games and he was like, even if the, he was too old, we found a way that he could participate. Right. Like nice. uh, we were playing Cascadia and we had him draw out the tiles and, or like, uh, you know, flip over the tiles and draw the animals and put them out and stuff like that. That's great. I think that's important. Even if you're, if you can't play, if you can participate, like for instance, so when I grew up, my parents would go to my grandparents' house and they would play uh pinochle. Hmm. And that game was too heavy for me as a child. But essentially what they said was, here's a deck of cards. As soon as you learn how to shuffle a deck of cards properly, you can then shuffle it to the table with us. And you can sit on your mom or your dad's lap and help them play the cards. So nice. I remember specifically three or four times getting over there and being like, can I have the deck? And then run the other room and I'd be like, shuffle, shuffle, shuffle. And then I got the first shuffle down. I walked in there like, I, I do this first shuffle. I did this first shuffle. And they said, oh, but you have to learn how to back shuffle. <laughs> so now I have to shuffle the cards down. You got to 
flip them back up. And so they flip back into place into the, into the deck formation again. And I was like, all right, that's the next step. So I ran to the other room. I started working on that stuff and tried to play that one. It took me a little while, but when I did, it was like I earned my way to the table. And I think yeah. that's a really cool element that you can do for younger kids. And I think, you know, drawing from the bag or some other way of participating and then them just being in the presence of the game being played is cool too. No, oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's so cool. I love that. Um, one of my favorite things that he did is while I was teaching the other adults at the table the game, he was constantly going, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh. Like, <laughs> he was so excited to be, like, listening to the rules. And though I don't know that everything, you know, clicked for him, he did right. have somewhat of an idea. He, he plays some games, so. Um, there you go. But, yeah, shuffling is a good way to, like, have them doing something while you get to play your game and, and then earn their way to the table eventually. And yeah, it's also probably the least fun part of playing the game, right? So you can contract (laughs) it out to the kid and there you go. Here kid, let your knuckles work for a bit. Yeah. (laughs) Well, my niece also helped and she was like on my wife's team. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes we were like, you know, don't look into the bag, but every once in a while we'd see her like, looking for a bear to put out and like she would match it up with a bear tile. And I was just like, Oh no, it's fine. You know, like that doesn't ruin the game. No, that's fine. Right. It's not like she's invested in helping somebody else win. She just wants to see certain tiles. Yeah, exactly. And I think that for her, right. It was like getting to match tiles, but strategically that didn't always work out. Like one time she put like a salmon where, you know, it matched with a tile. And I was like, Oh, but I want that salmon tile, and I, or I want that salmon, but I want this tile, and then, it, like you know, her doing that way obviously hurt some strategies. And just got to use your nature token then. There you I go. I know you're right. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, does your wife game with you? So I uh, I recruited her. I indoctrinated her. Nice. Um, when we met, no. I mean, she'd, she'd know spades and she'd played hearts and stuff like that. And she had played life and monopoly like everybody else. And sorry. Um, but no, she was not a game player when I met her and uh, I kept it secret for a little while because with dating, it's very hard to let your geek flag completely fly early on. Right? Like, so I had a couple of games in my collection and whatever. And I wasn't heavy, but it was, it was there. And she knew I was a little bit gamer and then it was started to get I started to like kind of get her to play a little bit. And then once she played her first one, she's like, okay, this is kind of cool. I'm like, all right, all right, it's going to be okay now. Um, and I invited her home to see my parents for Thanksgiving. And Thanksgiving at my parents' house is a gaming convention in itself. It is literally walk in the door. Hi, how you doing? Here's the hugs. Snacks are over there. What are we going to play first? And it ends up just being this... 18 hour gaming marathon every day. And then we go to sleep and you wake up and you start the next game. And, you know, it might be that we go outside and play horseshoes or we play cornhole to break it up, or we go for a walk or we run to the store to pick up more beer or whatever that is. But I mean, it just tends to be a gaming marathon and she hung in like a champ. She jumped in. She's like, okay, uh, this is what we're going to do. That's fine. And she's a, uh, she's a gourmet chef, and she will tell me that I'm a liar for saying this, but she makes incredible food. So she then got to help out with cooking at the, in, the, in the other room, and, and the dinner was better because of it. So that was awesome. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, 
but she did. She hung up like a champ, and she uh, we've been going full bore ever since, and she loves it. And she fully supported my getting into uh, game design, and I am infinitely grateful and thankful that she is so open-minded to that. How much does she participate in playtesting? So she is a very harsh critic, and uh, you better have your ducks in a row before she sees it. So uh, she can be phenomenal with her feedback because she dissects things very thoroughly. And so if you're at that point where that's a good thing, but if you're too early on in the process, it can be overwhelming in the number of things she can criticize and knock down. So you got to be about 70% of the way there, but she's a wonderful uh, developer at the tail end. Like she can take it to the next level when you bring her on board. That's awesome. It's that's important to have, you know, you got to have those steps. Yeah. Yeah. Some people, I mean, my wife won't play uh, like a prototype because she wants to play the finished game and doesn't want to have to like relearn the rules when there's inevitably changes. So, well, that's the other thing with my wife is she likes to play things she knows because she's a deep Mm. diver. Right. Like I'm an explorer. I want to play as many games I possibly can just to see all the different universes and understand all the different mechanisms and how they interact. Whereas she wants to play the game that she's played a number of times because now she can try out a new strategy within it or she can play this different tweak on it or kind of explore further down into that game. And I think that creates an interesting balance in her house. It means that we play a ridiculous amount of certain games like we I've probably played 200 games of Wingspan. I've probably played 200 games of Terraforming Mars. I've probably played, you know, 60 games of Maracaibo because that one was only added to our collection six months ago. Like, it's that kind of thing where we tend to play the same games over and over again as long as they have the depth to hold that up. Um, I don't remember what I was saying with that. But, yes, that's what we do. <laughs> play, play games a lot along, uh, deeply. No, that's really, really cool. I, I totally get that, too. You know, it's nice to be able to dive into those games. So do your cats ever, like, mm-hmm. do they, you know, bat stuff off? No, they are so old that they don't like to play anymore. They just oh, okay. literally want comfort and they want to be proximity. So they are either on a heating vent near our feet or they're on our laps. Every once in a while, they'll try to get on the table, but that's more of like, I want to sit on the table versus I want to go and swap the pieces. So actually, we don't yeah. mind playing with them on our laps. It's totally fun. Oh, that's awesome. Love hearing that. <laughs> There's always, We always have that desire to like, oh, I'd love to be able to like set up sleeping gods and leave it out or set up this bigger game and leave it out. But that, that doesn't fly. <laughs> Cats are awesome, but they are also terrible. Well, uh, they're like, they're like toddlers, right? Like they just yeah. want to explore and, and find and see what happens and, and they love gravity. So that's all. <laughs> yeah. That's a perfect analogy actually, because we did wingspan with uh, my f- wife's family. And as I was teaching it, it was just like the kids would come up and see the eggs and grab, mm-hmm. like try and grab those and grab just like every, the eggs they were like fixated with, right? Well, they like, look like candy. So I don't blame do. them at all. Right. So that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> It's like having an Azul tile that looks like Starburst. I mean, come on. This is automatically, you want to put that in your mouth. Exactly. Like, even as an adult, I want to, all right? Absolutely. <laughs> so, what a, what's, uh, oh, I almost skipped this before going to the next thing. Favorite game? Oh, for right now, it's Maracaibo, only because I really like 
the world that that sets up. I like the speed of the sailing. I like the combos of the cards. I like that there's an exploration track, and I like how the combos lay into each other. And I don't like combat in games. I just don't like the war theme as a whole. But I do like this idea of choosing which side you fight for and the benefit for that. So, like, do I want to be for the English this time or the Spaniards this time? That's interesting to me and and how to combo those into how to things. Not a fan of colonization at all, but I do love exploration. And even though that game doesn't explore the way I want to explore, it's cool that, like, you, I, I can see my, my explorer trekking through the jungle on the bottom part of thing. I think that's kind of fun. So for right now, that's my favorite. But I'm also a huge fan of, like, Lewis and Clark. And even though that's not, you know, it's an expedition game, not an exploration game. But I love the combos of cards in that one, too. I love the fact that you have to take two cards from your hand and one you use for the power and the other you use for the ability. And so you're constantly negating half of your hand in order to power the other half. I think that's so cool. Um, Other games I really love. I just found uh, I just got my copy of Foundations of Rome. And that game is beautiful. I mean, it's overproduced and gorgeous on every level. Um, the table presence alone is spectacular, but I've only gotten that played once. And as much as I like it, I can't wait to start deep diving into it and see how it goes. And I haven't even gotten into the special monuments yet. And as a wine geek, the first thing I did was open up the box and find the the royal vineyard tile. And I was like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> That's awesome. Are you? Uh, have you played Castles of Burgundy? Yes, uh, my wife's probably favorite game of all time, uh, um, and the worst production on a board game I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, have you that seen game, the new Game Found edition? That game is so ugly, and yes, we are automatically out on the new Game Found. I just haven't figured out what level, and it's ending in like ten hours. So I have to decide very yeah. soon uh, which one. But we're definitely in on that one because I'd probably play the game a whole lot more if it wasn't as ugly. So yeah. that makes a difference. Well, and the new expansion they added this time was a vineyard. A vineyard. Yeah. yeah. So I figured, you know, if you're a fan of it, you probably are in for that, right? Absolutely. And and I would love to, that expansion alone is probably one of the reasons we're backing it. But then the fact that they're oh, fixing I, the visuals, yeah. I would probably only back the part for just the expansion if it was otherwise. But now this is much better. So yes, count me in. Yes. My friend was tempted he always joked about i think he half joked like giving his player boards to his brother that does miniature painting and just being like we just paint this and make it look pretty and here's the tiles and paint these and make them look pretty like that was his thing (laughs) i actually have thought about if i want to spend the time because there's there's people out there and i love this world by the way there's print and play people out there yeah and they love to just retheme and apply their own graphic design to games that exist and then you know you obviously can't ever sell them you just have them for your personal copy but i've seen some really beautiful versions of games out there that people just make they bling them up and they they make special characters for them and stuff like that i would love to have enough time to turn that game into something amazing that I'd be wanting to play, but I'm too busy designing my own stuff. So I don't have time, but uh, I love that somebody finally fixed that. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. It's I'm really excited for that. Anyways, I talk about castles of Burgundy a lot lately, I guess. <laughs> um, so outside of board games, what do you do? What's your hobbies? So I'm a travel geek. 
And I don't travel as much as I'd like to, but my goal is eventually when I'm ready to retire is to be a traveling nomad. I want to, I want to live three months in this area and then six months over here and then three months over here and then come back home because Chicago is amazing in the summer. And then I want to go somewhere else for three months and then just kind of be bouncing around and stuff like that. And eventually I want to be able to travel the European game circuit. Like I'd like to do Essen, the UK Games Expo and stuff like that. And so I wouldn't mind spending a year overseas and just bouncing around to the, the different game oriented stuff over there and, and, and being indoctrinated in somebody else's culture. And maybe I learn German and, and bounce around Germany where they have amazing wines in Germany. So yeah, that's, that would be kind of one of the things, but I love to travel. I love to eat. I love to drink. I just love flavors. Um, I love culture exploration and there's so much interesting history in the world that you only know about if you're there. Right. Like you can go to an area and you can see the little museum and you know about 80 percent of what's in the museum if you follow history or 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 explore it in your own from home. Right. But when you get there, you get to see more nuances. Like when my wife and I we went to France um, for one of our anniversaries and we bounced around France and I went to um, the Alsace region, which is my favorite wines are from the Alsace region in France. And that's on the border of Germany and France. And one of the things that most people know about, but maybe you don't, is that during war, it was occupied by each side back and forth. So it was constantly being taken over and shifted back and forth for periods of time. So based on that, it is the perfect flux of the two cultures. It is very French and very German at the same time. Hmm. And so based on that, I think the food is better. Because you get the the heavy butter and the different techniques that French do, does, but then you get that German comfort food thought process and you put them together and it makes this really cool blending of the things. And then on top of that, you get that for the wine too, whereas the German side's a little more um, rigid and structured and does the exactness of things. And then you get the French side, which is the, all the tradition and then the the blending and things like that. It's just so cool to see how the whole thing works out. So one of my favorite things is if you ever get a chance to have a Gewürztraminer from Alsace, you can get them in your store. But if you get it locally, it's so much better. Alsace is one of those places where 90% of the wine they make never leaves the region. It's too good. Like just the locals drink it or the local areas around them drink it. So they only ship out the big producers. So unless they're making, you know, 600,000 cases that leaves the area. If they're making these small batches of say 200 bottles, that's never leaving the area. Wow. But you only find out that stuff by getting there. You only get there and get to taste that stuff and see the histories and get more into the depth of, of the regions. And so I just love to travel and go exploring. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. That's really cool. I hope you get it also helps with coming up with new game ideas, too. Yeah. (laughs) Well, hey, then you can write it all off, right? Like this is just uh, research. I'm going to quote you from my accountant. Thank you. (laughs) Yes. I yeah, I always am trying to being self-employed. It's like constantly looking at what's a write off. So (laughs) that's my brain. Um, That's cool. That's are there more things more uh, outside of I mean, Yeah, I mean, I love sports, but playing them is more fun than watching them as far as I'm concerned. Um, But 
I think anything where you keep score is interesting to me. So yeah, that kind of leads to that too. But I like the physical exertion side. I like the, um, the way that getting tired while doing something changes how you play the game. I think that's interesting too. So when I'm watching games like soccer, the strategy of it, I kind of understand, but it's less interesting to me than watching the star player play out the entire game and how he plays in the first 10 minutes. And then the last and the 59th minute is more interesting to me to see how that, that evolution of saving energy or burning it. And I kind of wish I could see like the computer version of that in a video game where I could see how much energy is left and like how he's, how he's expending it. That'd be kind of cool. But anyway, uh, I'm fascinated by sports and player interactions. I'm also fascinated by people's relationships. I, I, I'm a geek for romantic relationships, especially how people meet. I wow. love to hear the stories of dating and how that worked and how people meet each other and how that works out and the constant enigma of why this person's attracted to that person. It's not just physical attractiveness. It has so many other things that go on. It's like this really interesting meld of science and art and intuitiveness and chemical balances and pheromones that just give off certain scents. Like if you were, you know, prior to me and your wife, do you ever date someone and then, you know, you're cuddling on the couch or something like that and they have a smell to them and you go, that's not so great, but (laughs) I like you enough that I'll stay. But eventually over time it gets worse, right? Like, yeah. Then there's other people that you're like, oh my God, can you go work out? Because you smell so good after when you're sweaty and nasty. And like, I love that. (laughs) That's me and my wife, right? Like I I met her, I fell in love with her anyway, but then she's always saying, oh, I feel nasty. I haven't showered yet today. I'm like, I love it. Come over here. I'll get some love. (laughs) That is fun. Nice. I like it. Yeah. But I kind of relate to that. Like smell is a very important thing to me. So if... I don't think, you know, I, I'm sure I broke up with a girl or two that, uh, you know, the, the smell just like had me off and not that they were like bad smelling or anything, but it was just no. like, it didn't get, it, it wasn't me, you know? It's just one of the 20 different things that either work or don't work in a relationship. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't teeter it. It doesn't kill it, but it adds either positive or negativity to the whole process, right? Yeah. Like there was a very interesting social uh, experiment. I think there was a dating thing that would happen once where a bunch of people in New York slept in a t-shirt overnight and then they submitted the t-shirt in plastic bags. And then people who were single would walk and smell each bag and oh then decide gosh. who they want to date based on the smell of the t-shirt in the bag. I have no idea how that turned out, but when I heard about it, I was like, if I was single, I would totally participate in that. Just see what the hell happened. That would be so yeah. interesting. That is fascinating. That is, I think, a perfect segue to ridiculous theme. (laughs) (laughs) So it's not a ridiculous theme, but the thing I'd really like to see is someone do a dating dynamic game that isn't just the surface. I want to see the multiple layers of things. Like I'd like to see a timeline game of dating, right? So I actually have this idea written down, but I have no way of executing it. So it'll never get made. But I would love it if you had a card game that was like a deck of cards, the same way terraforming Mars is. And the top card has a picture profile on it of a person, right? And then maybe the backside is a male and female. So you can choose which side you want to go with. And it has traits listed down the line. 
And so you look at it and you're only supposed to look at the top part and you put it down. You're like, yes, I want to date this person. Right. So you put it down. And then the next card up is the secondary trait. So maybe it's their job. And the next one after that is their uh, hobby. And the next one after that is, do they have a good relationship with their parents? And the next one after that is, do they have a dog? And like you stack them in a way that tells the story about you going on a date and, and discovering that person and then also seeing how that person evolves, right? But it's the, it's the amalgamation of 30 cards, not one card. So every time you play it, it's completely different. But I have no idea how to do any kind of scoring mechanism on this. It'd just be a story game. Like it would just be like, okay, I'm on a date with Sally and she looks like that. And then I find out that she's got two dogs and I find out that she likes to cook. And then it would also have negative traits on it too. Like maybe she bites her fingernails or maybe she chews in a really atrocious sounding way. And like, can you put up with that? Is that okay? Or, you know, like, and I think you could learn about yourself in that via game, but it's not a game. It's an activity because there's no score. Yeah. So I, of course, you know, as you were, we were talking about the smells and stuff, I was thinking something very similar of like a dating type game, but I hadn't figured out exactly how that would work, but with yours, kind of combining my idea and yours here. Of Uh-oh, like, you just designed a game? Let's go, yeah, go just, ahead. <laughs> um, I was thinking of having like a track and you would have to have all these like trait trackers type things. So it could be like scent or like activities, like enjoyment. You know, what What are the love languages? Uh, well, there's the, the giving, there's the listening, there's the proximity, there's the compliments. And one more I can't think of. Quality time? Or quality time would be proximity. Proximity, it? yeah. Um, I'm sure somebody's just like yelling it at the podcast. I know what right it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you could essentially have like those kind of tracks and, and all those. And then as you draw out those new traits, you know, it might be like they're a cat person. And then you yep. have your profile that you've built beforehand. Like maybe the first part of the game is that there you, you go. build your... You know, you're like, I'm a dog person. I'm a, I like sweet smelling. I like getting gifts. And then right. as you're building these things, it'll be like, well, a cat person is more independent. A dog person is more loyal and, right. and me, you know, like wants attention. And so like that would add to their neediness or independency, you know, like, or not, yes. yeah, like those kind of yeah. things. I don't know if we're treading directly on fog of love right now. Right. Might very well be. <laughs> um, people be like, I know that game already exists. It's over yeah. here. But no, I would want to see it more like a deeper, like I want to go really into it. And I think it'd be kind of cool also to make it kind of a press your luck thing. Right. Where like you can mm. take three strikes on the line and see how far down the line you can go for that third strike falls. And then you, maybe you score based on the number of cards you turn over, right? Like maybe it's something like that. Maybe the further down the line you get without getting that third strike is your score. No. And you can keep going, keep going, keep going. Or you're like, no, okay, I've decided I'm either all in the relationship or not. And you score based on that. There we go. That's a great way to do it. Yeah, because you need that push your luck. Like, all right, am I going to learn too much here? <laughs> right, yeah. You know, like, I guess it's even like, committing right you're like all right i'm committed to this person now and we are mm-hmm. uh you know monogamous 
Yeah. And then you find out more after you get married because that's when yes. all the, the stuff they've been hiding comes out, right? Like Absolutely. <laughs> that's when all of a sudden you like open the closet and there's all these board games and you're like, see? <laughs> or I'm they've got some cosplay board. furry costumes going on. Like, ooh, <laughs> is that good or bad? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Look at that. Hey, we co-designed right there. <laughs> okay. Um, well, this was a lot of fun. Yes. I'm glad to have you on. Is there anything else you want to talk about before we close out? So only one more thing, and that is that uh, I'm following in your footsteps, which is trying yes. to meet more people in the industry, and I'm starting a podcast. Or, I'm co-hosting a podcast with Josh Bauman. Um, he's the engine, and I'm the sidecar, essentially. But uh, we, it's called the Tabletop Submarine. Uh, we just launched at the beginning of this month, and we have two episodes up. We're going to finish editing the third episode and post that probably next week. And we're recording more episodes going forward. But essentially what this is is it's a way for us to hear uh, board game stories from people in the industry and out of the industry and stuff like that. But just these incredible stories about board game moments and then dive deeper into what makes us love these games because of these moments. So that is our little tagline. It's diving deep to find uh, well, actually, I should probably say the tagline properly. Uh, it is diving deeper into why we love board games. It's the t- Tabletop Submarine Podcast. Nice. Um, you can find it on, I think we're on most of the major platforms. Apple iTunes takes a long time to process. So we're not on that one yet, but we're on Amazon Music. I know we're on Spotify. Uh, you can find it directly on podbean.com, which is where we uploaded it to. We also have a Discord server. You could probably find us by searching that. Uh, we're also on Facebook and we're on Twitter. Perfect. I am glad you mentioned that because there were several times during the podcast where I was like, oh, I could bring up the podcast you're doing right here. <laughs> and then I was like, or I could talk about this other thing. And I kept getting distracted. And then, whew, that's why I asked that question. <laughs> I think distractions are the best part of the show. So don't feel bad about that at all. Good, good. <laughs> yeah, and I've listened to part of an episode. It's summer vacation for my wife. Or, you know, she's a, she's a teacher. And so summers are always my, like, I don't have a lot of time to myself. <laughs> yeah, well, that's good, though. It's good. It's really nice. I love the summer vacations. And, and we do, like, a string of things and traveling and, and what just hanging out. But it means I don't get to listen to as much podcasts. But I did enjoy what I had heard of yours. So I'm excited to be able to listen, catch up pretty quick, and then listen to new episodes as they come out. Do, when do they come out? Uh, we haven't got a set schedule as okay. we're still trying to figure out our own personal rhythm as far as how that goes. And it also will depend on about what guests we can get and how quickly. So uh, we expect to get into a rhythm at some point, but this is very much like the early throes of it. And we're still improving. We're still getting better and finding our little groove. I figure by the sixth or seventh episode, we'll have it fairly down. But for right now, we're just trying to find our rhythm. Yeah. Well, and it's always, I feel like for me, at least it's constantly evolving. Like if you listen to the first Mm -hmm. episode to now, there are quite a bit of differences, but there's still like the core thing is the same. And that's what we expect to have the same thing. But also I'm very, very flattered that even our first episode has gotten such tremendously positive feedback. People have been really, really enjoying it. Um, and I don't say that to boast. I just say that to, because we put a lot of work into it and it, it's showing and I love the people responding so positively to it. Good. Good to hear. Yeah. So yeah, go ahead and plug all your stuff. I mean, you did just plug that too, but you can plug like your Twitter and, or whatever social media. 
Oh yeah, I guess I am on Twitter, but I pretty much only talk about board game stuff. And my board game, my Twitter is basically board game only. I don't bother with anything else. Uh, I am board game styles, and I just basically talk about game design. And I talk about board games as far as that goes. So that's where I'm at at that one. Um, my Facebook is pretty all over the place, but I don't really post. Um, so that one, I don't think you need to tune in for that one. That's okay. Just go to the Tabletop Submarine on Facebook instead, where I'll talk about the show and board game stuff on that. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Andrew, for coming on. That was really fun to chat with you and get to know you. Really excited to see what you do with all of your game designs going forward. I am, uh, I think I've, I've said this before, but it's summertime. My wife is off work. And so I will be doing a lot less editing. I think I spent maybe 10 minutes editing this episode. So uh, be kind, I guess. I hope you'll still stick around, even though it's it might be a little rougher on some of the edits. And I, if you enjoy the show, you can... I, I'm even doing this in one take with no edits. So if you enjoy the show, go rate it on Apple Podcasts and write a review if you, I, I was kind, I was lucky enough to get some more reviews, some five star reviews, and I think to help kind of boost recover a little bit from the one star review, and I really, really appreciate that. I will read those reviews probably next time because I am literally trying to pack and go to a cabin where I won't have internet, and I wanted to set up this episode before I leave. If uh, I already said if you enjoy the show, if you're interested in other things I do, I do a Bunkers and Badasses podcast. It's a tabletop RPG based on the Borderlands, like D&D type thing. It's a lot more explicit, so if that's not your cup of tea, don't worry about it. And I am sure that I am missing all sorts of things because I am in a rush, but I just I, I appreciate everyone in this community, listeners, people I just get to interact with on Twitter. And it's just a lot of fun um, being in this community. Genuinely, from the bottom of my heart, I, I look forward to the day that I get to hang out with some of the people I've met and interacted with. And thank you. You know, I, I think lately, uh, my mental health has been a little bit out of whack. And this community really does help keep me a little bit more sane. And so yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That is it probably you can follow me on twitter interact with me there at riles nerd and thank you until next week keep nerding out oh fun ever okay so early on in my life uh my dad took me to the local con in detroit i think it was called mishcon and one of the first times i went to this i was in awe that not only were there all these games i'd never heard of but they were also doing miniature versions of these games big. You know what I'm saying? Like, so there was a game that I would play with my dad called Circus Maximus, right? And this is a game about chariot racing, Ben-Hur style, where you're slamming your carts into each other and you're trying to, to whip each other and you're like putting them into the wall. And it's got like a, like a Formula One race kind of thing, but in ancient times. And I had played this game and I liked it but I'd never played it in a tournament style, like eight people deep, right? Like you have all the chariots lined up and he had little miniature horses and little miniature chariots and little guys in there. Oh my God. That was so much fun. 
And not only was it really fun to see that, and I was like, Dad, Dad, I got to play this. I got to play this. I know how to play this. Let's play this. And he was like, I got something else to do, but you can play it. So he set me up. And I think I was like eight at the time, whatever. And this little kid with these grown men, right? Like, and I'm the one kid around the table. And they're like, yeah, 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 kid. All right, you can play. Thinking they got an easy victory. Like, no problem. I'm going to beat this kid. I ended up winning the whole thing. And halfway through, we're playing. And I'd already destroyed three chariots. Like, I'd taken three people out. And this one guy goes, that kid's not a joke. Watch out for him. You gotta, you gotta play against that guy. And I heard it across the table. He was whispering to his friend. I was like, "I've made it. I'm cool." <laughs> <laughs> so I ended up winning that one, and that was pretty awesome. I ended up flipping the other guy's chariot at the very tail end and crossing the finish line. And and I, I will never forget that moment because I felt like, yeah, I'm a little kid, but I can, I can hang with you, big boys. 